For those of you that don't know me, I'm Buzz McNutt. I've been here a couple of times before. Yeah. Nobody likes inside jokes. No. Ask someone. It is my privilege to open the Word of God together. What I'd like to do is read this passage. We begin in chapter 3 and verse 9 and we'll finish the chapter and then we'll humble ourselves before God in prayer. 1 Thessalonians then chapter 3 verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I pray that this is not a perfunctory, routine prayer or time in the week. You are a holy and divine God who creates divine appointments, and this is one. So we pray that you, by your Spirit, would open your word to us, that we would be changed people, changed more into the image of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, Paul is going into a prayer here. But just to jump right into this and right into actually the middle of a paragraph. So in most of our Bibles, verse 9 is right in the middle of this paragraph. We need some context. So allow me just to take a moment or so to remind us of a context. That the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. Most of us consider at least had three missionary journeys. I divide the life of Paul up into five different parts Nonetheless, this is his second missionary journey and his first trip to Europe. And uh, he first went to Philippi, where he was arrested and thrown in jail, and then let go. Then Thessalonica, not being very far away, went into that town. A riot took place, and he was literally run out of town. He went to Berea, and the people from the last city, uh, Thessalonica, they followed him and caused trouble there. So he had to get in a boat and sailed down to Athens and then finally to Corinth. When he was in Athens, though, he was still very concerned about the church in Thessalonica. Maybe he had heard some things, uh, but just really wasn't sure and said, okay, I'm going to send our disciple, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to check on them. Meanwhile, Paul and those who were with him at that point went on down to Corinth a little bit further away until finally Timothy came to him and gave him the report. Now the report was somewhat of a mixed bag. Um, The church was doing wonderfully well in a number of areas. He continually, throughout the letter, thanks 
uh, God for what's going on in the Thessalonian church, how they're loving one another. But at the same time, he says, but I want you to increase more and more. That's why I kind of call it a mixed bag. And if you do what I said last week, which engage yourself in some mirrored reading of the text, that is, ask yourself questions. Wonder why he wrote that. Wonder why he said that. That's kind of mirrored reading, a reflection that can come back to you that you ask this kind of question because there are several places in the letter where he says things like, I don't want you to be ignorant about this or I don't want you to be unaware about that. Let me clarify this. As if to say, maybe Timothy's report also came back with, yeah, they've got some pretty serious questions going on. They've got some doubts about this or some questions about what the Lord is doing here or how this is going on. And so Paul's writing this letter back to them, both to encourage them, but also to address some of these other issues. And that's what Thessalonians is about. You can imagine the Apostle Paul could do the very same thing for us here. Could he not? He could say, you know what? I've heard about you. There are some very good things going on there, but there are some other things I'd like to address. And that's what's happening in, in 1 Thessalonians. So once again, what I'd like to do is go here to uh, verse 9 to simply say, what does it take? What does it take to be the community of God? What does it take to be the church of of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it take? And first of all, I want to highlight right here, what does it take to thank God? What does it take to thank God? Because that's what he's doing here at the outset. Now, back up for just a pause, a parenthetical thought here, a couple of points. First of all, there is just so much in this passage, like there are in so many passages. Pastors all the time have to decide, well, am I going to preach that? I'm going to preach everything. You know, we, we do have this kind of a little time limit thing that goes on. So you, you just have to promise to do some things and say, well, when I come back to this passage, I'll preach something else and, and, and that. So I can't possibly unpack everything that's in here. So I'll have to pick and choose and go along the way. At the same time, though, I'm like, whoa, that's really important. Can't skip that whoa, boy, you got to say that. That's really important. So what I've decided to do is simply go through, in some cases, just cite some things that you're just going to have to go back and study more in depth. And, uh, and I'm not going to leave them out, per se, but I'm not going to camp on them all that much. Okay? Well, here in the first verse, in verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. The highlight here comes in this word to render. Actually, in the ESV and the New American Standard, they kind of separate uh, these, this, this language going on here. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you all? Well, this word return in the ESV is an interesting word, uh, antipodidomy, antipodidomy, kind of like to say that one. Some of them are hard, some of them are a little bit easier. But this particular word means to pay back, to pay back. When Carl read the passage from Romans 11, you heard that. Who, who, who has given something to God, who's made a sacrifice, if you will, to God, that God now is obligated to repay? 
Same word there in Romans 11. It's used several other places in the New Testament. Um, I, I think particularly in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is, is saying, instructing, you know, when you give a banquet, when you give a party, when you have a party, when you have a dinner party, don't just invite people on what you consider to be your same socio uh, level. Uh, don't invite just those people who may be even more wealthy than you are for it would be seen that you were trying to get them to one day pay you back but invite those who cannot repay he says in verse 14 of Luke 14 and again the same word is there so when we look into what we call a dictionary in the languages, a lexicon, we find out that this word means to repay. Now there we have a problem. There we have a serious kind of danger, a warning sign that goes up. John Piper in his book, The Future Grace, in his chapter entitled, The Debtor's Ethic. The Debtor's Ethic can kind of creep into our lives. Piper says that gratitude, thanksgiving, can be a tricky thing. What does he mean by tricky thing? Well, for sure, the New Testament is clear. What should we give thanks for? In, in everything, you should give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You should thank for everything. You, you should be people of gratitude. Well, that doesn't sound very tricky. Well, when you mix that kind of gratitude with a heart that is as desperately wicked as mine is, it can get twisted. The truth is, believe it or not, I could actually thank you for something. I could, I could actually thank people for something that actually serves me. You see? That, that's how desperately wicked I can be. Oh, I'm going to go thank that person so that person will think, oh, he really likes me or he's really happy about that and, and in turn I get something back you see they can repay that back there's a real serious problem with that when it comes to God now for those who do know me I'm going to use the same illustration but now that I'm as old as I am I can use illustrations over and over and over again because they just say well he probably you know does that sort of thing and doesn't know he's doing it but I know I'm doing it still. <laughs> hey, let's suppose something. Let's suppose uh, the Chandler's here. The Chandler's invite Sandy and I over for dinner. Okay? They invite us over for dinner, and uh, it's a great dinner. I mean, boy, Jennifer rolls out the red carpet there, and everything's really nice. It's, a, it's just, you know... Oh, it's like the preachers come to dinner kind of thing, you know? It's great. And we sit at the table and we eat and we talk and we laugh. And we have a great time talking about the great things the Lord has done. It's just, it's just a grand time. It really is. And, but then it's, it's time to leave. And so Sandy and I stand up and I, I reach into my back pocket and I pull out my wallet. And, and I open that up and maybe take out a couple of 20s and, and, and leave them on the table. I mean, I just, want, I just want to thank you. Great. Here, here's a couple of 20s. You know. How do they feel? You know, in actuality, they probably feel insulted. You see that? They feel insulted. 
because here they have given freely of their heart, freely of their, not constrained to, they've freely given out of love and devotion and fellowship with the saints, and here you've completely destroyed it. Now back to God. Now back, now back to God. What has God done for you freely out of his love? What is the greatest thing that God has done for you freely out of devotion to you? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's right. He gave his only son. Now let me ask you along with the Apostle Paul right here. What are you going to do to thank God? What are you, you going to do to, in this word, so remember I'm going back to that, in this, what are you going to do to pay God back? What are you going to do to pay God back that's not an absolute insult? And yet we live our lives that way. Don't lie to me. We all do it. Me, the chief of sinners. We all do that. Well, oh, if I... If I read a little bit longer this morning in the Bible, if I pray a little bit more, God's going to like me a little bit more. I can thank God back. That way I know God's face is going to shine on me a little bit better today than it did yesterday. And by thanking God in this way, God says, Oh, you have so misunderstood the gift. The free now don't get me wrong there are a lot of commands in the Bible and there's a lot to be said about obedience and this does not negate obedience but when your gratitude gets to the place that you think you can pay God back and your relationship is better because of it you're missing the gospel and you're entering into the debtor's error. what what does it take to thank God properly? What does it take to thank God properly? Do it again, because it's the preacher thing to do. Say it three times. What does it take to thank God properly? Do you know the answer? It's God. It's God. Because apart from God, you can't do it properly. Have you ever had something happen in your life that is just so great? Maybe somebody helped you, somebody did this, or that, and you had this feeling. Do you know that thank you is just not two words? It's not a phrase enough. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that, that whatever situation that you were in, to just say thank you to somebody just didn't seem to cut it? Well, the fact of the matter is, when it comes to thanking God, all of them are that way. Nothing is ever going to get there on our part. It takes the spirit of the living God living in a person to give the kind of gratitude that says, God, even the gratitude I give you, you gave to me. <laughs> because he's all in all, as Carl read. What does it take to thank God? It takes God to thank God. And notice that all of Paul's thanking in this passage right here is directed toward God. He doesn't say, Thessalonians, I thank you. Thessalonians, you know, thanks for doing this. It's very rare, very rare in the New Testament that, that 
God calls for gratitude out of obedience. Uh, Christians, obey me. Thank you for obeying me. It just doesn't happen. It's always God, Godward. And that's what Paul does here. I thank my God for you. It's a rhetorical question. What, what can I do? And the answer comes back, nothing. You can't do anything. It's a rhetorical question. What does it take to thank God? God. Secondly, though, what does it take? What does it take to live? What is it? Now, here I want to go back to the context because that's not going to come across. What does it take to live the Christian life in this church? You see, because I think this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. That's why I want to go back to the context. He's heard back from them. He wants to be there. He can't be there. He understands they're wrestling around with some things, and he wants to write to them in such a way as to say, how do you live it? How do you do it? How do you take what you're learning and live that way? And it comes by faith. You see, in verse 10, take a look. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, I could do a sermon on prayer and what Paul's talking about to you in the prayer. But actually, uh, that's one of those things that's going to have to come in another sermon. Here, I want to say, notice that he's saying something is lacking in your faith. He wants to be there, but his heart is going out to them and he's saying, you know, there's, there's something that needs to be supplied here. Now, what could it be? Well, it could be, if they're young Christians, it could be, like us today, they need more Bible. I, I could go on a preacherly point right here and say, well, uh, first point, what's lacking in your faith? Or the American church, what's lacking in your faith right now? Uh, I, could, I could wax eloquent about the fact that only 70% 70, uh, 70 of people... Uh, who go to church even read the Bible from time to time. Unless, even though they think that prayer is even more important, even less prayers made. On average, the average pastor prays maybe three, three and a half minutes apart from standing in front of a congregation or over a meal a week. We could do that and we could say, that's what's lacking in your faith. That's what's lacking in your faith. I'm not going to do that. Actually, I want to look a little bit more in throughout the letter. I'm not actually going to turn to it, but I have four things that I want to present to you today. What is lacking in the church? What is lacking in the faith of the church? What is lacking in the American church? And First uh, Boynton. So First Thessalonians here, he says, I want to complete, I want to shore up, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith and ask the question, uh, these things lacking in the church today. First of all, one, number one, faith in interdependence over individualism. What is lacking in our faith today? What is lacking in our faith today is faith in inter interdependency. We lack faith in interdependency and we opt for individualism. Today we live in a culture and in a society where individualism is not just touted. Individualism today is noted to be the supreme virtue. Say it again. The supreme virtue. 
That is, there's nothing higher than for me to be me. There's nothing higher than for me to seek after being me and to be the best me that I can be. Watch television. Look at ads. Everybody wants to convince you, buy this car and you'll be the best you you can be. It permeates our culture to such an extent that interdependence has gone out the window. I have to stand here for the next few minutes and try and convince you what the church actually believed and lived 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Perhaps it's because they didn't have all the entertainment that we have today. Perhaps they didn't have the transportation. But there was a time when the church was the center of all, not just religious activity, but social activity. They joined together. They grew gardens together. They built homes and barns together. It was their life. And today, the contemporary preacher has to convince you that the Bible teaches interdependency on one another because we just simply don't have it. We have traded it for individualism. What is lacking in your faith? I need to, in some sense, the same way the Apostle Paul is to stand here and try and convince you, try and supply, try and complete, try and shore up your understanding that you need each other. And that should not be so. Don't misunderstand. I don't mean it should not be so that you need each other. It should not be so that I have to stand here and holler at you about. Secondly, you know, I back up because I missed a quote here that I'd like, I'd like to give you because I think it's pretty apt. Trevin Wax, writing on this topic, Trevin Wax, writing on this topic, says this, Expressive individualism poses a challenge for the church. Expressive individualism, me, everybody look at me, poses a challenge for the church. Because God's word challenges the me with the us and then takes the us and puts it under God. You might be able to see why I wanted to make sure I got the quote in. It takes the me, see, and substitutes it where it should be the us and then takes the us and puts it under God and that just that just chaps us as North Americans that just grades at us that I not only need you but that all of us have to be under the authority of God and we push against it we need our faith strengthened in that area secondly though now Secondly, faith in principle over pragmatism. What's lacking? What is lacking is faith in principle over pragmatism. We've been saying it for years, particularly at least since the 70s. 
70s and 80s and 90s, we've done all kinds of things in the church to entertain and to bring them in and to say, here, come see our show. It's bright, it's spangly, it's loud, it's music, it's great. We've got bells and whistles, we've got smoke, we've got video. Come see what we have so that we can attract more people. Whatever works is pragmatism. We'll do whatever works over principles, over a principled life based on the Word of God. Here's my illustration. It comes from the life of the Lord Jesus himself. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, one of the things that Satan did, that the devil did in those temptations, not going to do them all, just one, is he took him up on a high place and he said, look out around and look at all the kingdoms of the world. And, and Jesus could see miraculously all the kingdoms of the world. And then Satan said to him, he said, see all of this? Do you see all of this? All that, I will give you all of this if you will bow down to me. For a weird person like me, it's kind of funny in some ways. I mean, do you know who you're talking to? Uh, you're talking to the Lord Jesus, maker of all that is seen and unseen. I mean, he was Lord in the manger. He was always eternally Lord. He's over everything. You know, well, you, you don't think Satan knew that? Oh, I, I actually believe Satan knew that. Well, then, what, what's your point? What's the point of the temptation? Ah, you see, the point of the temptation is you can have all of this without going to the cross. See, if you know the life of the Lord Jesus, he was tempted by Satan early in his life. The crucifixion obviously comes at the end. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this. Well, he already owns all of that. Yeah, but you could own all of it without the cross, without what we just sang about. Without the cross. And without the cross, there's no you or me. Principle. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our best example. Don't you think that he was headed to something that was terrible? Don't you think that he was headed to something that was incredibly difficult to endure physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way possible? The hardest thing that any person has ever known is the cross. And that he stayed with that which is hard. My word in the outline is he was a principled person over just getting whatever works. Thirdly, we need shoring up and supplying what is lacking in our faith because faith in applied doctrine over emotionalism. Now, I know that's kind of a mouthful. Applied doctrine over emotionalism. So now I want to go back into the context with you. The Thessalonians had been learning some things. Pretty young church. 
They'd been learning a bunch of things, but obviously, as we've already said, they have some questions about some things. And in my opinion, when I read the entirety of the letter, it seems to me that what the Thessalonians are asking for is, how do we live this thing? How do we... A little slang in there that may be irrelevant. How do we live out the Christian life? I understand about this doctrine. You taught us about that. But how does that actually work? And when I say to you, church, or to you, church, in, in America today, we lack the ability of applied doctrine. How do you take it from here and put it into practice there that stays true to the principle that we just talked about in the earlier point? How do we apply these doctrines? Now listen to this sentence. Sometimes, the problem is, sometimes... It's a matter of ignorance. Pretty strong word, especially in the American language. We'll unpack it in a second. Sometimes it's a matter of ignorance. And sometimes it's a matter of guts. First of all, sometimes it's a matter of ignorance. Maybe we just haven't been told. Why don't we know how to live out the Christian life? Sometimes we don't know. We don't know everything. We need to learn some things. We need to learn how to walk out the scriptures so sometimes it's just paul uses the word in you so i don't want you to be ignorant in one translation another i don't want you to be unaware in another translation sometimes you just don't know and so you need to learn how to walk it out sometimes it's a matter of guts you know you're just not going to do it you know and you know it takes courage but you don't have it Sometimes it's continuing on the problem. Sometimes it's the neglect of leadership to properly disciple. Why don't you know? I'm not trying to take the responsibility completely off of your plate. You have a Bible, and if you don't, this church will give you one. But sometimes it's the neglect of leadership not to properly disciple believers. And sometimes it's a matter of doing the right thing at the threat of pragmatism. That is, sometimes you should do this even if it means it's going to cost you. And sometimes it could be both. That is lacking in the church's faith. And you say, well, sounds like to me you're getting on your own soapbox maybe about the present context. Honestly, I believe that it comes from the text. As I said last week, I'll repeat it again this week, the Apostle Paul ends every chapter with something about the last days, the last time when Christ returns again, about the judgment. And he, he takes it so seriously that he is indeed sounding the alarm. And he's saying you must learn these things about how to apply this text. Why? Because when you don't know how to apply it, you will revert to that which you know best. Do you know what you know best? You revert to your feelings. And they control you. I know this because they control me. At least they seek to. When you don't know how to apply the Bible, you revert to your emotions. We need to shore that up. And then finally, 
we're lacking in our faith in eternal judgment over present survival. We do. Oh, man. I could just kick myself how many times I fret over this or I do over that to an excessive amount when in all of eternity it's nothing. It's nothing. Uh, Jim Hamilton, James Hamilton's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Jim has written a book on judgment. Uh, the glory of God's salvation through judgment. And in that book, he says that the glory of God through salvation in judgment is the center biblical theology of the church. Listen to this. The transformation the church needs, I would add by faith, because it's my point, the transformation that the church needs is the kind that results from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God is a saving and judging glory, an aroma of life to those who are being saved and death to those who are perishing. And this is the saving and judging glory is at the center of biblical theology. He wrote over 600 pages on that topic. It's got to be pretty tough to do. But he went through the entire Bible demonstrating that one thesis. And yet, once again, like I did last week. What did I do last week? I know you all remember. You take notes. I said, when's the last time you heard a sermon on Satan? When's the last time you heard a word? a whole sermon on, on judgment. When's the last time you heard a sermon on judgment? Oh, it happens, I know that. But really. Now, what's my point? My, my point is, is, is not to make you all into alarmists. It's to do just what I think that the Apostle Paul is doing with the Thessalonians. This world is not our home. And there's coming eternity. And in between this world and that eternity is Judgment. Live like it. That's what we're talking about. How do I walk this thing out? And sometimes I need to say to you, I am just stricken with fear. I don't mean it's wonderful, that awe, awe reverence. I think that's important. I think that the Bible supports that awe reverence for that word phobia in there. But there is also a shake in your boots judgment and we will be judged and those of you who know the Lord Jesus have one difference about that you will not be condemned you will not be condemned because of the grace of the Lord Jesus but there is a judgment coming well I've got to at least try and finish the text would you look a little bit further with me? Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all the saints. You see there it does it again. There it is. Just can't leave it alone. He's framing it. He's putting it in that framework. But he says, I want you to abound more. 
I want you to increase in your love. I know you're loving each other. That's a good thing. I've heard that about you, but I want you to do it more and more. He says the same thing to the Philippians going on there. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I have a challenge with this. I did. And maybe it's my upbringing. You know, I didn't grow up in a, a home. You know, sympathy is found someplace between symmetry and sympathetic in the Bible, my dad would say, you know. You know, you're not going to get a lot of sympathy around here. That's kind of my upbringing going on. I remember when I became a Christian, um, just trying to learn things. I was memorizing the Bible. I was just bubbling up. Uh, the truth is, is I was obnoxious. I, mean, I was just like, wow, this is great. And uh, I was in a Sunday school class. I was in a Sunday school class, round tables all around this little larger room, different people sitting at different tables, and the teacher happened to be the pastor. And he said, you know, we've come upon this lesson. I've forgotten exactly what it is. But that lesson meant that we, we ought to speak to one another. We ought to encourage one another. If we have a challenge with somebody, we ought to speak to them about that challenge, but we ought to be transparent with one another. And so he said, what I want you to do is get up out of your chair and walk around, and, you know, if there's somebody you want to encourage, speak to, whatever, do that. And so we stood up like that. Again, I was brand new, green as I could be in the Lord. And, and this redheaded older lady came up to me, and she came up rather closely like that to me, and she said, I want you to know something, that ever since you started coming to this church, I, I, I have a real problem with you. Man, I'm a new Christian. I'm like, you know, Jesus is everything. You know, the word of God is just exciting. I got a real problem with you. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked it out just a little bit there, but I, I began to I began to look around at different people. They, they talked about people this way. They talked about, they did this thing that way. And I, and I was reading in the Bible in John 13. And God said that, you know, you'll prove your love for me by your love for one another. And I said, God, I don't know that I love these people. I mean, they're hard. They're a mess. You people are messy. And it's hard to love. And you want me to increase my love more and more, and I'm not really sure I'm starting out of the gate. I mean, maybe I'm not a Christian. And then as I began to continue to read and read and grow, I noticed three things about believers that I'm hoping, as we're hoping to shore up your faith, that you'll recognize in the Bible to be true. The first thing is, in loving and increasing, we know that God has given us different personalities. He's made us differently. And I can prove that he approves of that by citing some biblical characters. For instance, what about Abraham? What do you know about Abraham's personality? I'm going to answer that because it's a trick question. Not much. You don't. Read through all the narrative about Abraham. Did you ever see where he was furious at these people? Did you ever see him laughing and having a great time? Did you ever see him jovial? No. It's like Abraham. It's kind of like a flat line. It's just God says to do it. He does it. Boom. No, not a lot about it. Take Moses. Huh? Come on. Moses. What, what do you mean? You want me to go back where and do what? I can't talk. I don't want to do this. 
He does it. He brings them out. I'm out in the middle of the wilderness. Why didn't you just kill us in Egypt? I mean, why do you bring these people? Just kill me. I mean, you see Moses' emotions doing just the opposite of Abraham. Up and down, up and down. One minute is a party after crossing the Red Sea. The next minute we're hungry and thirsty. And oh, man. He's, he, he's just all, his emotions are on his sleeve, we say. Or what about in the New Testament? Look at Peter. Look at Peter. Oh, Peter. I love Peter because I'm a Peter. You know, Peter's always talking, opening his mouth, sticking both feet in, you know, uh, just on and on, just talking away like that, you know. But then I think about the Apostle Paul. Boy, now there, and I have to read the text, but, you know, there I see a guy, straight line, you know, maybe a drill sergeant kind of guy. There's a task to be done. We're going to do the task. If you're in my way, you stay here. You're not coming. I'm going that way. You want to go with him? You go that way. I'm going this way. And God used them all. They're different people. And you're different people. You're different from the person next to you and around the room. But God has made us all according to his plan. And not only that, but secondly, you know, God has given you a spiritual gift. God has gifted you. And I love the way 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, uh, 1 Peter describes this. He doesn't just give it to you. Oh, no, he's not back to the meism of individualism. No, not at all. He's given you a gift in the body for the common good. And with that gift comes some differences. The, the person with the gift of administration is loves just putting the plan together and getting people together and sizing it up and orchestrating the time when you need to be here and there. And that's just, oh, that's just thrilling to them. Whereas a person with the gift of helps says, where's the mop? The person with the gift of administration, no. The person with the gift of prophecies mops in the corner. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, people with different... Different gifts display them differently. But where did they get that? They got it from the sovereign choice of a Holy Spirit who gives gifts to men for the common good of the body. You see? Wow. So you think that that's important because you have that gift. And you think that that's important because you have that gift. And I can see that about you. And you know what that helps me? Not only do I know you have a different personality, but you have a different gifting. I love the way God does that. You see what I did? No, you didn't see what I did. You thought I was going to say, I love you for the gift that you have. But I didn't do that. I did not do that. I said, wow, isn't God great? Isn't God great the way he gifts, the way he gifts you? We don't choose it. He chooses it. And the way he gifts it. But you know what? Because of that, I increase in my love and appreciation for you. There's a third thing that I noticed in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, this is what it says. Until we all attain, we're supposed to encourage one another, build up each other, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and for the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Now he means man and women, man and, mankind, to a mature person. That is, you're in a different place in your journey than I am. We all are in a different place in our walk with the Lord Jesus. 
And we need to recognize that 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 obnoxious kid way, way back there probably deserved everything that that red-headed lady said. Honestly, really. He's just spewing Jesus all over everybody. Zeal without knowledge, for sure. But I was at a different place. At a different place in my journey. I was at a different place in my maturity. And we're all different. And I'm hopeful that these kind of things that I'm mentioning will help you biblically in learning to increase in your love for one another. I was at a conference, you know, pastors and teachers and people get together for conferences, thousands of people in a huge auditorium kind of thing. And I was talking to one of my dear friends, Don Whitney. Don has written several books. Maybe you have them, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life and, and others. And, and Don and I are very close, and we meet up at these places and at other times. And, and we were standing there talking at this conference. Oh, who knows about what? Just stuff, life, his wife, Kathy, my wife, Sandy, you know, the, the, the normal stuff. And I noticed that over, over uh, Don's right shoulder, just standing there, was this young man just standing there. I've seen it before. You can tell, right, when somebody's kind of hanging around waiting to talk to somebody. And for sure, I thought, you know, here Don Whitney is, best-selling books and teacher and that sort of thing. I'm sure this young man is waiting around to talk to Dr. Whitney. So once we'd finished and it looked like, you know, conversations winding down, I kind of start to withdraw and, you know, and this young man stepped forward, and I believe his name was Matt. It's been a long time ago, but I believe his name was Matt. And he said, no, uh, Dr. McNutt, I'd like to talk to you. I went, okay, all right. That wasn't totally unusual, but uh, not nearly as normal as there. There's a line behind Don. There's like, you know, one, no, excuse me. And he stepped forward, and he said, I promised myself that if I ever saw you again, I was going to come up to you and I was going to thank you. I was going to thank God for you. See, he had been a freshman at Palm Beach Atlantic University when I was a freshman teacher my first year. I, I, taught, I taught introductory Bible, five courses, five hours every day, five different classes. And he was in that class. He said, I promised myself if I ever saw you again, I was going to come up and I was going to thank you. And he began to tell me about all the ministry blessings that God had given him and where he was in the ministry. And then he said this. He said, I, I chose to follow the Lord Jesus in full-time Christian ministry because of your passion for the Word of God and what you taught me. I know that sounds incredibly self-grandizing but God should strike me dead if that's the reason I told you how do you thank God how do you take credit for that how do you how do you thank God oh Thessalonians it takes God to thank God and folks, there are some serious things lacking in our faith. 
Sometimes it's because we're ignorant and we need to study harder. Stop this hogwash about, oh, well, that sermon certainly wasn't for new believers. And start digging. Why? Because that judgment is coming. And the apostle says right here in this text, I want to present you to the Lord who is coming, holy and blameless. And there isn't a person in this room that wants to stand up and say, I'll get in the front of that line. Father, I pray right now that you would do by your Spirit only that which you, Holy Spirit, can do. Convict, convince. As we confess before you, we're sloppy and we're lazy. And help us, Lord. Help us to look at the person next to us and across the room, the way you've made them, and increase in our love. And just maybe then we'd have the courage to pray, Oh God, give me the gratitude to give back to you. For all that I am, all these people around me are, and for the mission that you've brought me on. God, we need you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.